Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Lauren, how are you feeling today? Um, pre- pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. See, I'm, I'm not feeling great, but I'm not feeling bad either. I'm kind of right in the middle. You're sort of neutral? Yeah. By the way, if you are a longtime listener to Tech Stuff, you may remember that joke. <laughs> I'm making it again. Did you make the same joke in the... Okay, so today we're talking about net neutrality, and um, Jonathan and Chris did an episode called net, How Net Neutrality Works way back on December 15th of 2008. And I made that same joke then. Some jokes just... I'm glad I'm glad that you've advanced so much as a joke teller in You're, the intervening yeah. five you know, years. I learned from my mistakes. I can repeat them almost exactly. Uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about net neutrality. And the reason why we're bringing this back up is because it's in the news again. Uh, it's also, you know, back in 2008, when Chris and I did the, the episode, that was before a lot of the actual FCC's rules and regulations on net neutrality had been formalized. Right. So there's actually been quite a bit of development since we first did it. Now, the basics remain the same, as in what the actual concept of net neutrality is. And before we get any further into this, the, the reason we're doing this, besides the fact that it's in the news, is that one of our valuable listeners actually asked us to cover it, right? Uh, yeah, Bob M. via Facebook wrote in and said, uh, how about a podcast on net neutrality? What other topic is there? Yeah. And and honestly, I mean, it's it's big. It's very it's, big. It's very ongoing as we will slowly unveil, unveil over the course but, of the next four hours. No, we're not going to we're not going to do that. But uh, first of all, I mean, this is. A concept that is core to what the intent was of the Internet, if you're to talk to any of the architects of the Internet, any of the people who built the protocols, whenever they talk about the Internet, this is the kind of stuff they say was their idea from the start, was this net neutrality approach. So what does that mean? Well, on a very simple level, it means that you should be able to use any Internet service provider to access any kind of legal service or site that's available on the Internet, and it should be a level playing field. Right. You know, that no ISP should be allowed to deny a content provider access to that um, disbursement. Yeah, exactly. So anyone using it on either side, whether you are someone who's creating websites and services or you're a person who wants to consume them, should be able to use any Internet service provider and expect the same experience. Right. Now, we all know that things can happen, right? There's the, the Internet is a network of networks, and so sometimes you can get traffic on the network of networks. Sometimes you can get a server that's overwhelmed. That kind of stuff is oh, unavoidable. Oh, sure, yeah, but based on the hardware and the signals that are coming through at any given point in time, you can run into, as as we all have, many different kinds of, of slowdowns and problems. Right, but, right. Now, so, so that's, that's, but that's part and parcel. But that's aside, I'm yeah, sure. That's yeah. just... That, entropy, that's that's you know. part, yeah exactly. <laughs> you don't want to artificially introduce those issues, right? Which is really where net neutrality comes along. So I thought it would be fun to use a couple of examples. So I wrote them down in my notes. Okay. And and I got super technical. So you use Joe's Internet Service for your ISP. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Joe McCormick, our co-host from Forward Thinking. Clearly, uh, he he, I'm sure, has aspirations of running his own internet service provider business. And he, Joe has a lot of aspirations. He does. He he aspires constantly. So, Joe has his internet service provider. That's your ISP. You use Joe's. Uh, now, you typically visit three sites. Now, one of those sites happens to be run by Joe. 
He he's not oh, okay. He's not just a provider. He's also a content creator. Oh, uh, yeah. He's a really good writer. Yeah. So then you've got these two other sites that are not Joe's. Now, under the rules of net neutrality, you would be able to visit all three of those sites with an equal playing field and that the same speed and bandwidth would apply across all three sites. Keeping in mind, like we said before, sometimes on the Internet, traffic clogs stuff up. So maybe one day one site loads a little more slowly than another. But they're all using the same kind of connections. Right. Now, let's imagine a dark, scary world where net neutrality is no longer in play. And it, you, again, are using Joe's Internet service. But now it's not acting the same way it did back in the in the glory days of net neutrality. Now, when you visit Joe's website, it loads incredibly fast. It's almost instantaneous. But whenever you try and go to one of those other two sites you used to go to all the time, it just takes forever for them to load. Sometimes they don't load at all, and you might even be denied the access to them. This is the world where Joe is able to decide what stuff you can access and how quickly you can access it. So what you're saying is that Joe is on purpose throttling my connection to these websites that he doesn't own? Throttling the life out of it, Lauren. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, so this is the fear of net neutrality uh, and, and what would happen if it goes away. Uh, and why the story is so important right now. So there are a lot of different implications with net neutrality and uh, or the absence of net neutrality. Uh, you could end up not just having an ISP that uh, gives preferential treatment to certain sites while holding other sites back. You could also have an ISP that ends up creating a tiered system, right? You might have Imagine all the different scenarios. I could have a, a, a system where, uh, let's say that for one price, like a baseline price, I get the ISP service where certain sites load up very quickly. Anything that belongs to the Internet service provider or partners with them loads quickly. Everything else loads really slowly. Maybe there's a higher level of service where if I'm willing to pay more as a customer, then I get a level playing ground. Like that's a possibility. But that means that, you know, you suddenly are, are having to choose, you know, what what's going to happen. Or if they don't offer that choice, then you have a scary world where you have a fractured Internet. Right. So depending upon which Internet service provider you happen to subscribe to, you would have access to certain sites and not and services and not access to other ones. So let's say, Lauren, that you are a Comcast customer and I'm an AT&T customer, it's possible that our two experiences of the Internet are completely different and that you go to sites that I can't go to and vice versa. Uh, kind of similar to the, to the way that some cable television providers will offer certain packages of channels that others do not. Yeah. In fact, it really reminds me of the old days of online service providers where you might have like AOL as one and I have uh, uh, Prodigy. Prodigy. Thank you. Yeah, I'll have Prodigy is another one, which means that you get content over the Internet, but well, not over the Internet, online, I should say, because right. it's online service provider. Yes. You get content online. I get content online, but it's two totally different packages of content based upon what those companies curate for us. That's kind of what the Internet could potentially turn into without net neutrality. And it's why a lot of people are upset. 
Now, there, of course, are multiple sides to this argument. It's not all just, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm painting this picture where there's just one side. Oh, right, right. And, and you are kind of painting the, the deepest Orwellian kind of dystopia of, of the absence of net neutrality. Yeah. But there are arguments against net neutrality. And to be fair, a lot of them are, are being put forth on behalf of people who could, who could, um, stand to financially Benefit, benefit from the from absence. Them. Right, right. Um, but, you know, the, the arguments against it state that, like, overregulation of the Internet by the government could create uncertainty in the Internet market, um, thus discouraging investment and stifling innovation, um, which maybe. I mean, there are other the, the counter to that is saying that a fair playing field creates a fluid market that everyone can play on. So, for example, uh, a smaller Internet service would be able to effectively run a business on a level playing field, but could be completely run out of business in a world where ISPs choose who they play with and who they don't. Uh, right. Or, you know, if, if you set up kind of expense tiers for how much b- bandwidth you're going to get, then someone like Amazon could play in that field. But could your, you know, mom and pop corner website do the same thing? Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a multi-billion corporation, you're going to milk billion dollar, I should say billion dollar corporation. You you could afford this. You're still going to fight it. I mean, any <laughs> any corporation is going to fight it. If it means that they are going to have to pay something that otherwise they would not have to pay, they'll fight against it. Or but, pass the buck on to their customer, a.k.a. You us. Know, us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Either, their customer ultimately will be us, whether their customer like maybe their first customer is another company. But that company's customers might be us. You know, eventually sure. it trickles down to where. We end up having higher prices for the services and 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 uh, sites that we want to be able to to utilize. Right. Well, although you know, I would also argue that the counter to that would be that either way, we are paying for our internet service, and whether yes. we're paying more to the internet service providers or to these companies that might end up in a mafia-like situation, have to pay their internet service providers for yeah. their bandwidth. This is I'm a sorry, nice. <laughs> it sure is a nice website you got here. It'd be a real <laughs> shame if someone I don't know burned it down. No, I mean, I, I, I think that analogy is perfectly legitimate. I mean, I would not back off of that for a second. I think, I think the two of us are clearly a little bit biased on okay. the side of net neutrality here. We might be just a touch, but then again, our livelihood depends upon the internet. So it, it does. I mean, you know, it's so, so take, take everything that we're saying with a little bit of a grain of salt, but, um, but back to, back to arguments against it, because I do think that, that creating uncertainty in the internet market due to overregulation is a completely fair yes. concept. Oh, sure. You could, you could make rules and regulations that far overstep the intent of and that's bad. a level playing ground. Yes, I agree. That is entirely bad. If you put in regulations that put the ISPs at a disadvantageous uh, position, then there's no reason to be in that business anymore. And then we're stuck in a totally different problem. Right. So, yes, the regulations have to be fair and they have to be level. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just bad news. And there's there's also the argument that those kind of regulations could prevent ISPs to for, from managing traffic on their networks. And those those arguments have been made in court before. And, and most of the time, from what I've seen, the FCC has said the which we'll talk more about the FCC later. But they tend to say uh, that networks do have the right to to take care of traffic. So if there are traffic uh, bottlenecks or problems, rerouting that is perfectly within the rights of, of that the, company. Yeah, of the ISP, mm-hmm. because uh, ultimately that's better for everybody. Oh, sure. Uh, no, no one. I don't think that I don't think that the government wants to have their fingers that deep in it no. because that sounds problematic for. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, well, I mean, 
apart from the NSA, who has their <laughs> elbows deep into it. Yeah, I don't think the government really wants to get that involved. Ooh, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, but they're not so much concerned about <laughs> about traffic bottlenecks. They're more concerned about the content. So let's be fair. Okay. Another argument against net neutrality mm-hmm. says that competition between ISPs will naturally discourage any one company from throttling business from content providers. I would I would agree with that if it were the case that as a consumer, I had equal access to all ISPs, because here's the reality in the United States. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the U.S., it is uh, not uncommon to have a very few a very limited selection of choices when it comes to ISPs, particularly if you live someplace like, say, an apartment complex, which might have a contract with a particular provider. I've I've lived in apartment complexes where you didn't have any choice. Uh, if you wanted to have cable access, cable Internet access or just cable TV access, you had one option. Uh, and if you didn't want that option, then it meant you didn't have that service. So it's not like I have access to all of these. You might have access to some smaller ISPs, but even those smaller ISPs, most of the time, are working on the larger ISPs' actual networks. Right. So it's possible that if a larger ISP has these uh, policies that go uh, against net neutrality, that it would trickle down to these other smaller ones. And, and so you feel like you're going to avoid it because you're not going with the big guy who has the scary policy. But if the little guy's working on the big guy's network, it may still affect you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I wish we lived in a world where we had all those choices, because then I think this wouldn't be a problem. All you would what would happen is you would have uh, ISPs that would uh, experiment with throttling certain uh, traffic and allowing other traffic to go quickly. Other ISPs would say, hey, if we don't do that, we're going to get lots of customers. And then the playing ground would would level out through that. But that's not the reality. Of the yeah, the, the way that it stands, it's not really a fully it's not fully realized, realized yeah 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 problem um but so in in essence what this camp is saying is that creating net neutrality regulations is fixing what's not broken and that that's generally bad yeah i i and i can understand that my counter to that is net neutrality rules prevent it from breaking so it's not that it's fixing something that's not broken it's making sure it doesn't break because it's better to be proactive than reactive in this case is my is my personal point of view. Now, that I can't stress that enough. That's my personal philosophy is it's better to go ahead and uh, have these in place to protect against breaking. And and especially considering that a lot of, you know, like we've been talking about using Joe as that example, mm-hmm. for example, Comcast has its own streaming services and it right. might be advantageous to Comcast to throttle, say, Netflix. Sure. Yeah, uh, exactly. Financially, because then you've got, you know, if you are discouraging people from using a competing service, then they're more likely to use your service. At least that's you know, generally the, the line of thinking. So. If I happen to uh, be both an ISP and a content creator, then it certainly is within my interests to make sure that the experience of getting to my stuff is painless. And if I can make getting to competitor stuff painful or at least not convenient, then I am making extra money, right? Not only am I making money off of uh, charging people to use the Internet because I'm an Internet service provider, but... Theoretically, there's some other means of generating revenue through the content I create as well. So you end up making lots of cash. And if you then charge other companies to be put on that same fast track, you're making money that way, too. There's a lot of money here. Folks. That's kind of what I'm getting at. <laughs> um, 
Speaking of money, money, you know, it, it actually costs money to build out infrastructure. It costs money to be able to support the amount of traffic that's going on a network. So, you know, it, it means that you know, they have to have that money because it is a business. It's not like it's it's some sort of weird charity or public good thing. This is a business and businesses are in it to generate revenue and profit. So in order to do that the, and uh, and still build out a competitive infrastructure and, and maintain it, uh, at that. That's a cost. That's an oh, ongoing absolutely. cost. And it's it's a really high and really um, intricate cost, actually. I mean, I, I think that probably most people listening to this show have have broadband Internet access mm-hmm. and take it a little bit for granted at this juncture because it's probably in your pocket and on yeah. your desktop at home and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that is that is not what most of the world has at this point. And if any one ISP or, or any number of ISPs even could afford to build out their inter- infrastructure further, that would be. A great boon to them. Right. So so obviously this is, you know, like we said, it's a pretty complicated issue. The the concept of net neutrality is incredibly simple, but the and the the consequences of what happens if net neutrality isn't a factor are pretty complex. So uh, there's, you know, there are a lot of different ways to approach this. I mean, there's the the hope that the market would support net neutrality simply on its own because it's the most advantageous for everybody. Uh, That's that's sort of the ideal, but it's not necessarily proven. Uh, then there's the fact that we've had some government agencies step in and try and create some regulations and some rules uh, to codify the net neutrality so that it ends up being de facto. That's that's the situation, right? That's going to be the status quo. And to go outside of that would be breaking the law. But that itself is complicated. So complicated, in fact, that we're going to take a quick break right now to thank our sponsor. All right. So like we said, there are there's a in the United States, we've actually had some government regulations step in. And recently uh, it was overturned, which is a big thing in the news. But to start off, we need to talk about the agency that tried to create uh, actual legal rules to govern net neutrality. And that is the Federal Communications Commission or FCC. Right. Now, their, their job is to regulate interstate and international communications by radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable. So uh, some of the FCC's duties have gotten a little cloudy because those definitions aren't as clear-cut as they used to be. Uh, yeah, when the FCC was created, the Internet didn't exist. Yeah, so... So what to do with all of this newfangled stuff has been certainly in question many times over the past few decades. And early on the Internet's life, there was a fear that putting it under the mantle of the FCC would stifle its ability to grow. And, uh, you know, that was one of those real concerns was the idea that, you know, you could kill this before it could be anything by putting in too much oversight and regulation. So there was a lot of hesitancy on the part of the government to step in and really, you know, get involved in this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you if you look at the history of FCC getting involved with with net neutrality, it's relatively recent. I mean, keep in mind that the Internet and the World Wide Web even uh, has been around for a few decades now, but it wasn't until 2005 that FCC really got involved with net neutrality. Uh, well, to well to back up just a little bit, I, I did want to put in that the FCC defines broadband providers as being different from other telecommunications systems. That is and, true. And that was laid out back in 1996 with the Federal Telecommunications Act of 1996. Yeah, and and and. The thing to remember is that uh, broadband providers are in information services. 
right? right? Which is different from the telecommunication services, which was considered more of the actual networks that allow people to uh, to uh, make calls or whatever, whatever those systems happen to be that the FCC mm-hmm. looks over. So that's important because that that distinction ends up being the very key to the to the arguments that we're seeing come to light right now. Uh, right. And this this distinction was upheld in a 2005 Supreme Court decision of the uh, National Cable and Telecommunication Association versus Brand X Internet Services. Right. This will come back in a moment. Yep. But um, other things that happened in 2005. Well, yeah, that's when the FCC created the Open Internet Regulations, also known as net neutrality. And these were rules that were announced in 2005 and included that, well, they said essentially that consumers are entitled to certain rights, which include uh, access to the lawful Internet content of their choice. So clearly anything that's against the law, things that violate copyright, for example, or have uh, illicit material in them, they are not protected Protected. under these rules. Also, the ability to run applications and services of their choice. So, again, Internet connected services. In other words, not limiting it just to using a browser to look at a website, but all things connected to the Internet, including things like email, etc., uh, then also the ability to connect the types of devices of their choice to the network, assuming those di- devices are legal and aren't designed to hurt the network, which is great. This is saying that your Internet service provider would not be allowed to uh, say, yes, you can completely hook up your your laptop to the cable modem, but we're not going to allow any mobile devices to hook up to Wi-Fi. Oh, right. Or, or to say, um, yes, you can hook up your Mac, but you cannot hook up your PC. PC. Yeah, that would be that would be another great example. So this rule would essentially say, no, it has to be agnostic toward all platforms that are capable of connecting to your network, assuming that they're not designed to hurt it or be, you know, or that they're they themselves are illegal. Uh, and then also said that uh, customers are entitled to access to competing services among networks and content providers. Uh, that one is a little, I mean, like I said, in certain areas in the United States, internet service providers operate at an effective monopoly. So that one is probably the weakest among those four. Uh, and at any rate, those were kind of the proposed rules, but it wasn't like it was a, again, a formal thing. This was, uh, you know, sort of what they were saying, this is what we want to protect. Right, right. Nonetheless, people started kind of posseing up on on both sides of net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, HandsOff.org was in favor of the Internet service providers and SaveTheInternet.com was in favor of net neutrality. And both were saying that they were trying to save the Internet and it was a little bit confusing. Yeah. Um, so on October 22nd, 2009, so this is after the original text of net neutrality episode went out, uh, the FCC sought out public input on drafting formal rules that would guard the Internet's neutral status. And they adopted the Open Internet R&O on November 20th, 2011. And those rules are actually uh, a little odd in that not everyone is treated the same way. The wireless providers were given a slightly um, a looser, looser leash uh-huh. in a way because wireless at that time was starting to was just starting to take off. Whereas, uh, the, the wired broadband services had been around for quite We're some entrenched, time. Sure. But yeah, yeah, things like, uh, uh, 3G, 4G, um, and, and other wireless, uh, standards and protocols were relatively young. And so the idea was that we don't, again, same sort of idea that was around earlier saying we don't want to overregulate a young industry and thus, uh, end up inhibiting its ability to blossom. Right. So uh, the wireless ones have a little bit, their, their restrictions aren't quite as um, tight 
as the wired ones. So, you know, everything was great, right? I mean, everyone just said these are fantastic rules and I absolutely agree with everything you say and the world is a better place. Everyone except the Internet service providers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it didn't take very long before these rules were challenged. Um, Like officially in court. Yeah. Verizon Communications stepped up to the plate and challenged these rules. And they said that the FCC doesn't have the authority to make such regulations and that Congress had never given the FCC any authority to make such regulations. Therefore, these rules are moot. You don't have the authority to to make the rules, therefore the rules don't exist. Yeah, and trying to make them is illegal, and your face is dumb. Yeah, that was pretty much, I think, was actually in the deposition, was uh, your dumb face was in there somewhere. Um, They they used legalese, but uh, the intent, we think, is there. Um, At any rate. This this went through the courts for a good long while, because, I mean, you know, so so we just just said that that was late 2011, early 2012. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's early February 2014 when we record this, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, so it's hasn't been that long since this decision was handled handed down. It was the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which ruled two to one that the FCC does, in fact, have the authority to regulate broadband and wireless service providers. That's against Verizon Communications. They said that the FCC didn't have that authority. This court said, no, they've got the authority. But those rules of the open Internet that the FCC came up with were based upon a flawed foundation and therefore are not valid. So. It's not that the FCC doesn't have the authority. It's just that the the justifications they use to build their rules, they don't they, they don't exist. Right, right. They, they were saying that because the FCC has has previously put out that broadband service providers are not, not to be like, treated like, like telecommunications, telecommunications providers, that rules for telecommunications providers cannot be applied. To broadband service providers. Yeah, this is where that definition comes back to to bite us, right? Because that definition where we say that broadband providers are information services, not common carriers, then that's where that's where it all breaks down. Because the rules that the FCC had had created were for common carriers. It was based on the rules for common carriers. And if if it's if you know you, it's saying like you can't treat an orange like an apple because an orange is not an apple. So just because you have rules for apples doesn't mean those rules apply to oranges. That's essentially what we're saying here. So I know one thing that I wanted to clear up was what the heck is a common carrier? <laughs> what what does this common carrier thing mean? And it actually dates back to a concept called just common carriage. And common carriage was that if you have a business that uses some form of um, a fundamental service that or, that, that uses a public rights of way, mm-hmm. you cannot discriminate with that service, you, you have to you have to allow open, open access to everybody. everybody. Right. So here's an example that I read that I thought was a good one. Let's say that you operate a ferry. So you've got a you got a little boat that you you ferry people across a river. But that river is a public right of way. You can't deny anyone service on that ferry because you're using a public right of way. And so telecommunications, those networks are considered a public right of way. And it was really important in those early days because it meant that. If you were one telephone company and you were competing against another telephone company, you could not deny your customers the ability to call the other company's customers. Uh, right. We talked about this some in our AT&T miniseries. Yeah, we did. Exactly. Yeah. It was one of those things where it was an important decision. It meant that it, it leveled that playing field. So you had options on what company you wanted, you wanted to use, depending upon how many were available in your region. And you didn't have to worry that the option you chose would limit your ability to make phone calls. Well, those rules don't apply 
to broadband service providers because they don't they aren't under the definition of common carriage or common carrier. And and this is just a legal distinction. It's it doesn't mean that the FCC couldn't make up rules that do apply to broadband providers. Right. And and in fact, this decision upheld some of the FCC's powers over the Internet at large, which we'll get into in just a moment. Yeah. But but I did I did want to say that this this entire court decision was not quite what either side was really hoping to hear. Right. Um, I mean, it was clearly on the side of the ISPs, but both sides are kind of looking at this and figuring out whether and how exactly to further appeal the decision. Right. Because you've got the FCC, which still apparently has this power to regulate broadband providers. They just have to figure out a different way of going about it. Then you've got the broadband providers who are told that these net neutrality rules don't apply to them because they were based on a faulty uh, foundation. But, you know, neither side really is ready to move forward because if if the broadband providers decide to just throw net neutrality to the wind and the FCC comes up with new rules, then they're going to have to reverse everything anyway. Right, right. And meanwhile, the FCC doesn't really know if they, you know, like they know that the providers are going to challenge the FCC's authority again. So, yeah. And in some cases, a few Internet service providers have have prior regulations that are applying this to them, right? You found out a little yeah. about Comcast? Uh, it was, it, I, I did not know this. I, I was looking through one of the articles about net neutrality and about this decision in particular that, that overturns net neutrality, the, the formal net neutrality rules. And it stated that in a previous decision uh, against Comcast, which had challenged the FCC as well, uh, Comcast had agreed that it would abide by the rules of net neutrality for seven years Actually, and I don't even know when the date was of this particular uh, court case, but I know it, I know it was not seven years ago. Uh, but Comcast agreed that they would abide by the rules of net neutrality for seven years, even if those rules were to change or be thrown out entirely. They would still abide by them. So, uh, so that means that Comcast at least will be playing fair uh, by the by the standards of net neutrality for. Uh, as long as those seven years are uh, still in in effect, in play, right. so if even if even if net neutrality is completely a thing of the past for a while, anyone who's got Comcast service will still be experiencing it. At least you know they should be right, like, assuming that everyone's behaving themselves. You know, so maybe sometime I'll I'll write up a blog post once I figure out uh, all the details of that because I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. Certainly an interesting agreement yeah. to say, I will abide by these rules, even if the rules cease to exist. Uh, it almost seems chivalrous. <laughs> um, so we're recording this on February 5th in, in the interest of full disclosure, because on February 3rd, a group of lawmakers introduced bills both in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives in an effort to restore the rules of net neutrality as they had been created by the FCC. Essentially, this is a stopgap. It's not meant to be a permanent thing. But if this this uh, legislation was signed into law, then you would have those rules in effect until the FCC was able to draft something permanent to catch up and and make actual rules. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah this this one's being called the Open Internet Preservation Act. Yeah. So uh, and I mean, obviously, open Internet preservation, meaning that they want to preserve those rules that have been made before. So if this gets passed, um, then we would see those rules remain in effect until the FCC came up with something more permanent. Uh, so what what are the what are the odds that it's going to be passed? Well, it's bound to face some opposition in the House of Representatives. You see, the the people who have uh, proposed this bill are Democrats. 
the House of Representatives is controlled by the grand old party, the GOP. Uh, and uh, historically, Democrats in the GOP tend to vote against one another. Usually. Um, usually. And, sometimes and sometimes you can see people reach across the aisle. Certainly, certainly. And a lot of the people that I've a lot of the Congress people who I've seen opposing net neutrality have been on the Republican side. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and you can draw your own conclusions about that. I will leave all commentary aside. For, the for interest- once. Yes. I. It's hurting me. But then uh, in the Senate, it's expected to pass because the Senate happens to be controlled by uh, the Democratic Party right now. So. Uh, so it may be that we see one bill pass in the Senate, one bill fail in the House of Representatives, and the the bill in the Senate would go to the House, and we'd have to see what would happen there. Um, uh, but whatever happens with that, proponents of net neutrality seem overall hopeful right now, mm-hmm. and for for a couple different reasons. And that's first because, like I said earlier, that the court's ruling upheld the FCC's power to regulate the internet at large. Um, that was set forth specifically under Section 706 of the Communications Act, mm-hmm. and. Uh, some people are even saying that the decision could have granted the FCC power that the Communications Act didn't really intend. Uh, D.C. Circuit Judge Lawrence Silberman said uh, he, he was one of the judges involved in this recent decision, uh, said in his dissent that the ruling gave, and I quote, the FCC virtually unlimited power to regulate the Internet in the future, um, which I think is a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> it could um, be. But but, you know, th- there are certainly some fringe theorists who are who are passing on a little bit of doom and gloom about all of this, but it's also being talked about by net neutrality proponents as a this, as promising as promising. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I think the point when the FCC reached out its gloved hand in the middle of the court proceedings and said, join me now and you will be more powerful than you could possibly imagine <laughs> that people got a little weird feeling about it. But uh, I can't imagine why. Yeah, I don't That's know. usually it's, so promising. You, nothing but sunshine and puppies after that. <laughs> Uh, no, but seriously, you know, it's Come one to the dark side. We have puppies, <laughs> <laughs> puppies and chocolate, but not chocolate puppies. Uh, all right. So uh, except for chocolate labs, which totally different thing. No, I, now I've gotten off on the rails. It's clearly too warm in this room. Let's talk about some of the the quotes you've grabbed here. I, I found them really interesting. Uh, yeah, these were actually from the How Stuff Works article on uh, on how net neutrality works, which was published way back in 2006. So these are so these are 2005, 2006 era mm-hmm. quotes. But mm-hmm. I think that they're still extremely relevant. Relevant. Sure. Yeah. Um, the first one is from The Economist and and gives a interesting perspective on the whole thing. Uh, the writer said, blocking or interfering with existing traffic on the Internet is unacceptable. But if operators want to build fast lanes alongside it, they should be allowed to. So in other words, uh, don't throttle. But if you can build faster stuff to things, go on ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's one way of looking at it. I, 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 letting I letting people make money, they're essentially saying, is not a bad thing. It's kind of going back to that tiered approach I talked about earlier. And in fact, I mean, we see ISPs offer tiers Right now, where you can get a certain guarantee. Yeah, Yeah, you get Mm -hmm. a guarantee of a certain uh, bandwidth, like a certain download speed. Uh, And if you pay more, then you can get more. Uh, It may very well be that, like I said, we might one day see a tier where uh, it's a it's a lower price, but you trade off with access to certain things or you pay the higher price and you get access to everything. That could be an outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, My second quote is from John Hannibal Stokes, who is writing for Ars Technica. And this is a long one, so stick with me, folks. Uh, he, he was saying the simple truth that you can't have a free market without government regulation should be so obvious that it hurts. 
Because markets rest on the rule of the law, the relationship between markets and regulation is not a binary opposition, but a continuum. Anarchy at one extreme and overregulation at the other are both antithetical to free markets. You have to have rules to play by because the rules guarantee that the game is fair. An excellent quote. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, again, you have to have rules. The the trick is to make sure that the rules don't break the game, right? Right. Which is that that's the fear. Which, that which is a trick. Is, I mean, yeah. it's that's tricksy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially when you talk about technology, which tends to uh, outpace law by about. 10 years at least. Oh, sure. So, you know, I understand why this is a complicated issue. I mean, people have a lot of stake in this and uh, and I understand why there there's opposition. Um, I'm still very much for net neutrality. Personally, uh, I like the idea that if I if I have a certain ISP that I'm going to have just the same experience going to one of their sites as one of their competitors, um, because I mean, I'm still paying that ISP for that service. So I, I feel like I should have access to everything that's out there. I don't want there to be a fractured Internet where Lauren's Internet is different from my Internet. And then I can't see the awesome cat video that she's posted because it's not on the service that my Internet service provider uses. And that right there is the best description of a dystopia that I've ever heard. Yeah, the inaccessibility of cat videos. Yeah. Madness. There would be riots in the streets. All right. But so no that, cats and dogs living together. No. Or if they did, we wouldn't know about it. At least. Anyone not using that ISP would know about it. Don't let that world come to be. All right. So that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff, our update on net neutrality, what it is, what the arguments are, why it was in the news. Guys, if you have any questions about net neutrality or you have suggestions for other topics, you should contact us. Let us know what you think. And uh, that email address is discovery.com. You can also send us a message on Facebook or on the Twitters or even go to Tumblr. You can look for us. We have TechStuffHSW as our handle. We'd love to hear from you, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 